the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Gregory Jans. He's the author of Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. He'll join us in the 5 o'clock hour. But first, we want to cover the shooting at a Texas church that took place on Sunday morning. As many of you were worshiping on Sunday morning, this congregation of believers was disrupted by a 26-year-old who killed uh, more than 20 of them, 26, wounding 20, Uh, After he uh, dressed in tactical gear, opened fire at the church outside in San Antonio or a city outside of San Antonio and then entered the church. The gunman was a 26 year old. In fact, I uh, just watched a press conference that was held by the sheriff in that area and other authorities who are continuing to investigate. There's a campaign there. Don't name the shooter. And so I'm not going to name this uh, 26 year old shooter either. The uh, thinking behind that is you don't want to encourage others thinking that they might have their 15 minutes of fame. And so they've decided in that small town, in that community, that they're not going to name the shooter. We'll tell you about him, but beyond that, that's where we'll end it. Well, the mass shooting unfolded at about 11.30 a.m. at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, which is about 30 miles southeast of San Antonio. Investigators say the victims ranged in age from uh, pre-born right up until 72 years old. There was one child in utero. There was a 19-month-old, 72-year-old. One official said 20 people were hospitalized with injuries that also ranged from minor to very serious. The massacre is the deadliest church shooting in U.S. history, modern U.S. history. It's also, according to the governor, Greg Abbott, the deadliest mass shooting in Texas history. The motive is unclear, although they seem to believe now that this was a um, a family-related dispute uh, and that the individual was targeting family members he thought would be at the church at the time of the shooting. It turns out that his in-laws, uh, and the presumption is he assumed they were there. There were some harsh emails that were uh, sent earlier in the day. Uh, they were not present, but he did go into the church anyway. We do know that the shooter was a U.S. Air Force um, uh, volunteer, not volunteer. He had been in the U.S. Air Force. That has been confirmed. He served in the military branch at uh, Hallman Air Force Base in New Mexico from 2010 until a bad conduct discharge in 2014. He was court-martialed in 2012 for assaulting his wife and injuring a stepchild, uh, which he was dis- uh, rather... <clears throat> When he was discharged, he received 12 months of confinement, a reduction in military rank. At about 11.20 a.m., he arrived at the, uh, the the gas station across the street from the First Baptist Church. He was dressed in black tactical gear, a ballistic vest. He crossed the street. He started firing uh, a Ruger AR uh, rifle at the church before he entered. He then entered the building. He kept firing. He was uh, confronted by an armed resident who chased after him. This was someone who wasn't in the church service, but a neighbor who had overheard the gunshots. He was later found dead roughly five miles away in Guadalupe County. In the press conference that was hold just mom- held just moments ago by the uh, sheriff's office, they said that he had been shot three times. Uh, once in the arm, once in the abdomen, and then a self-inflicted wound that they believe was responsible for 
uh, his life ending. Officials said 23 people were found deceased in First Baptist Church. Two were found dead outside. One person who was transported to the hospital later died. One of those killed was a 14-year-old, Annabelle Pomeroy. He, she, rather, was the pastor's daughter. The pastor had been out of town, returned to find that his 14-year-old daughter was among the victims. The church's layout would have made it very difficult for churchgoers to flee a shooter who came through the front door, which he did, according to a congregant attending a vigil at the church. The church was described as having only small exits on the sides and uh, in the back. Uh, The gunman came through the front door. People would have had a very difficult time. There was nowhere to go. Neighbors of the uh, shooter said that they heard gunfire coming from his direction in recent days close to his residence. Another neighbor said, uh, who argued, hearing gunfire in that area was not uncommon, uh, but that they thought he may have been Uh, doing some fire practice. President Trump, speaking from Tokyo during his trip there, called the shooting an act of evil through the tears and through the sadness. We stand strong, the president said. Earlier, he tweeted, may God be with the people of Sutherland Springs, Texas. The FBI and law enforcement are on the scene. I am monitoring the situation from Japan. Governor Abbott said in a statement that while the details of this horrific act are still under investigation, Cecilia and I send our sincerest thoughts and prayers to all those who have been affected by this evil act. Sutherland Springs has a population of about 400 residents, and it's thought that virtually everyone in town would have known someone uh, whose life was impacted by that shooting. Sunday's shooting comes just over a month after 58 people were killed and hundreds injured on the 1st of October after a gunman outside the uh, of a, a country music festival in Las Vegas opened fire there. Authorities in Texas say the uh, the mass shooting at First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, was not random. There was a domestic situation going on within this family, authorities said on Monday morning in the news conference. They said the suspect had sent threatening tweets or texts to his mother-in-law, who occasionally attended the church. She was not present the day of the shooting. Authorities refused to go into detail about the domestic situation, except to say the gunman was angry at his mother-in-law. The suspect did have a non-commissioned, unarmed private security license similar to a security guard at a a concert type situation. According to a Texas Department of Public Safety regional director, there were no disqualifiers entered into the National Crime Information Center database that would have precluded him from receiving a private security license. Now, that would have been unarmed. And there's some question, uh, the fact that he was uh, discharged from the military, whether or not he could have lawfully purchased a weapon. He had several. Uh, Private security background checks, including fingerprints, criminal history checks with the Texas Crime Information Center and the National Crime Information Center database, were checked and he was cleared. The National Crime Information Center is one of the databases accessed by the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which is supposed to bar domestic abusers and dishonorably discharged veterans from legally buying guns. So it's not clear how he was able to acquire them. Authorities said the gunman bought four weapons in total, two in Colorado, two in Texas, one each year, beginning in 2014. Uh, An ATF official said three of the four guns had been recovered, including the semi-automatic rifle that was dropped at the scene when he was shot by a good Samaritan, as well as two pistols found later in his car. That same ATF official said in general, if an individual has a dishonorable discharge from the military, he would be prohibited from possessing firearms. The investigation is continuing into exactly what the gunman's discharge said and whether this is a case of someone slipping through the cracks of a background check system.
In another detail, authorities said the suspect called his father while two bystanders rather were pursuing his SUV to notify his father that he had been shot, didn't think he was going to make it, which, of course, he did not. But that was a result of self-inflicted wounds, we are told. Authorities say that uh, he appears to have shot himself when the vehicle crashed. Now we're going to take a break here in just a moment, uh, providing some uh, technical detail of what we now know happened, and then we'll take a look at it from a different perspective. Also, later in the program, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans. He's the author most recently of Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. David French, writing for National Review, points out that if the report is is accurate, the shooter in Texas wasn't permitted to legally own a firearm. The ATF explains the Gun Control Act prohibits any person who's been discharged from the armed forces under dishonorable conditions from shipping, transporting, receiving, or possessing a firearm or ammunition. The shooter apparently cared as much about the Gun Control Act as he cares about laws prohibiting murder. And while the Texas shooter was obviously able to fire on the church members long enough to commit one of the worst mass murders in American history, he appears to have been stopped by a guy, a good guy with a gun, a civilian who armed himself, and engaged the shooter. Well, according to the law enforcement briefing, a resident engaged the shooter with his own gun. The shooter then dropped his rifle, tried to escape by car. He died in that car, but it was not clear, uh, at least um, it wasn't until the press conference earlier today, whether he died after being shot by the resident or whether he killed himself. We now have heard that he apparently killed himself. The calls to do something ring uh, ring out once again, and if the past is any guide, the various gun control proposals that will be put forward with maximum rage and sanctimony wouldn't have stopped this or any other recent mass killing. But the question is there. What can we do? Is there something that can be done? Well, David French writes, while I'm extraordinarily grateful for the courage of the good guys with the guns who've ultimately put a stop to multiple mass shootings, it's not at all clear to me that good guys with guns present the answer to our troubles. They help, certainly, but they are not the cure for this national disease. In recent history, if it teaches us anything, it's that there is no reliable way to stop a man determined to commit mass murder. He can use guns, cars, trucks, fertilizers, box cutters to exact a terrible toll on human life. We have better answers for jihadists and other terrorists than than we do for vengeful and evil men who lash out based on a purely individual slight, real or imagined. In the meantime, we once again mourn the dead. We express thanks for the brave and do our best to rationally seek answers in a nation beset by grief, anger and significant uh, division. And uh, again, the uh, the shooter had received a bad conduct discharge, not a dishonorable discharge after domestic violence uh, conviction in which he seriously injured his uh, stepson. Well, when you see a mass murder unfold on television and read about it online, well, it becomes the single most important thing that people are thinking about and, and doing. But what's the best thing that you can do in response, the most effective thing you can do in response? What well, also happens to be the single most important and effective thing you can do on a sustained basis to turn the hearts of evil men, evil men to whom you have no access, to strengthen the courage and resolve of good men and women, and to inspire the ideas and actions that bring change, you can pray. It's as simple as this. God is sovereign, and every good and perfect gift comes from him. That includes changed hearts. It includes comfort that only he can provide. It includes the courage to be the good guy with the gun who can, and reports suggest yesterday did, stop a rampage in its tracks, although that may not be the long-term solution. It includes the clear mind to consider and enact 
policies that might make a difference, whatever those policies might be. So, yes, if you're not praying and thinking in response to um, uh, mass murders like the attack on First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, your response isn't as effective as it could be. If there's one thing that's clear from the spate of mass killings in the United States, it's that we need God to move on the hearts of men and women. But don't tell this to the angry Twitter uh, correspondence, if you will. Yesterday, as Christians bled and died, they, the uh, Thoughts and Prayers Brigade immediately and viciously attacked those whose immediate response to the tragedy was the most effective response. I won't bore you with all the vicious uh, tweets, but the Huffington Post has an approving roundup. Uh, their messages were theologically illiterate. They were spiteful, ridiculously insensitive in the face of a crime so clearly directed at believing men and women, although uh, it seems that it was a um, dispute within a family. The simple and stupid version of the argument is that prayer doesn't work, either because the critic believes the God of the Bible is no more real than a flying spaghetti monster or because he sees the persistence of evil as refuting the efficacy of prayer. And while I disagree with atheists, and by the way, the shooter was apparently an outspoken and avid atheist, The quarrel right now isn't with their disbelief, it's with their choosing this moment to not only mock Christians, but to also display their ignorance, rather, of basic Christian theology. The presence of evil, especially the increasing presence of evil, demands a prayerful response. Scripture is full of example of God's people crying out to him in great distress. Jesus cried out to God in his great distress. Time and again, he responded in ways that bring healing and restoration to broken people and broken nations. He always responds in some way, often not the way we ask or demand. The more sophisticated version of the argument against thoughts and prayers relies on a scriptural concept itself. Faith without works is dead. As articulated in the book of James, if you see a brother or sister hungry and poor, clothed and merely wish them well, then you've done them no good. They're not against the prayer, you see. They're against prayers unaccompanied by action. But which actions? Progressives always respond to mass shootings with a series of proposals uh, that wouldn't have stopped the mass shooting. They admit that themselves, but this desire to do something is overwhelming. So the righteous response is signing petitions or firing off angry tweets about ineffectual public policy proposals. Early reports indicate the Texas shooter was uh, convicted in military court of domestic violence and couldn't have lawfully possessed his weapon. He ignored existing gun laws, so those... Um, Changes would not have made a difference for him. The sad and terrifying fact is that no one has a reliable answer for evil men who want to commit mass murder. And when no one has the answers, isn't it that exactly the time to pray? If the core problem is evil lurking in the human heart, who can reach the human heart more effectively than God himself? Even when hearts remain hardened, he can open the eyes of counselors, family members and others to the dangers in their midst. There's a bottom line here. Either you believe that God intervenes in the affairs of men or you don't. And if you do, then you know that no one and nothing is more powerful than the creator of the universe. That means that while prayer is not the only response to evil, it is both the most rational response and, in all likelihood, the most effective response. This isn't to say that other things should not also be done. This is a very old truth. God declared to ancient Israel, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now is exactly the time for, hu- for humility, prayer and repentance. We don't know what to do, but we do know our land needs healing. Twitter activists can't do it. Neither can politicians. Angry celebrities are useless. Now is the time to appeal to heaven. In the face of great evil, we must pray. 
The incident took place in Sutherland Springs, which is about 30 miles southeast of San Antonio. Other church shootings you should know about. Sutherland, of course, took place on Sunday. The gunman, 26, opened fire at First Baptist Church, according to authorities, killing 26 people, injuring 20 others. Fresno, California, November 5th, 2017, two people were shot at St. Alphonse Church parking lot, the Fresno Bee reports. Father Bob, uh, uh, Dominic Rajapa uh, told the Fresno Bee the morning mass had just ended. The churchgoers were leaving when gunfire broke out there. Manuel Garcia shot his 61-year-old wife, who, was, who had filed for divorce, and her 51-year-old boyfriend. Authorities discovered uh, the shooter dead at a home after apparently shooting himself. Antioch, Tennessee, September 24th, 2017. Police have said that 25-year-old Emmanuel Sampson, masked and wearing a tactical vest, fatally shot a woman who was walking to her vehicle and then entered the rear of the chapel of Christ, shot six other people walking silently down the aisle with a 40 caliber handgun. He'd been charged with murder in that incident. Charleston, South Carolina, June 15th, 2015. Nine people were killed in a shooting at the historically black Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, while supremacist Dylan Roof has been on federal death row since earlier this year after a jury convicted him of dozens of charges, including federal hate crimes and obstruction of of the practice of religion and the shooting deaths of nine Bible study attendees. Knoxville, Tennessee, July 27th, 2008. Gunmen opened fire at a Tennessee Valley Unitarian Church. They pleaded guilty in 2009 to killing two people, wounding six others at the uh, church, which he had called a den of un-American vipers in a suicidal letter. A judge sentenced him to life without parole on two counts of first-degree murder, six attempted murder. Brookfield, Wisconsin, March 12, 2005. A gunman fatally shot seven people, hurt four at the church service in a hotel before killing himself, the Associated Press reports. The church pastor and the pastor's son were among those who lost their lives. The prosecutor said the 2005 that the shooter felt the church, um, practically the pastor, was responsible for some of the issues that he was dealing with, depression, employment issues, financial issues, clearly a mental health case. Fort Worth, Texas, September of 1999. Uh, seven people were killed, seven others injured at Wedgwood Baptist Church. Later, took the shooter took his own life, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram reported. These events have happened. They are happening. And again, it seems that this is a time to pray. Brady Boyd is a pastor. An incident occurred at his church. And he wrote for uh, Fox News what his response was. Our church had a deadly shooting. He says, here's how we have made it safe dealing with uh, issues of security in churches. Now, there are now organizations springing up to deal with security in churches. Now, no one would have imagined in a community of 400, a very small church with one entrance and very few exits from the front of the sanctuary, that security would be an issue about which they needed to concern themselves. But increasingly, churches are taking it more seriously, and there are organizations that are providing training so that individuals in the congregation are prepared to defend congregants, particularly children, in the event of some sort of event, of uh, some sort of violent assault. We'll tell you about it when we come back. Um, Also, um, uh, we'll get into some of the other news events uh, that are swirling around today and over the weekend. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans. His latest book is Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. 
He'll join us about 15 after 5 o'clock. Hope you can join us. Also want to remind you, KPDQ is giving away nearly 100 tickets to Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Visit kpdq.com to enter to win four packs of tickets to the very special 2 p.m. performance on Saturday, November 25th at the Keller Auditorium. Portland Singing Christmas Tree is celebrating its 55th season with a two-hour musical production showcasing both uh, traditional and contemporary Christmas music performed by over 350 adult and uh, youth voices. So hope you uh, can join us again, kpdq.com. You can take an opportunity to win a family four pack of tickets. Well, Pastor Brady Boyd says that 10 years ago, the church he was pastor of New Life Church suffered through its darkest day when a gunman came on their property, opened fire with an assault rifle, killing two of their teenage girls, injuring others before taking his life in the hallway of the church. This Sunday, I was uh, taking a special guest to our memorial site to tell her the miracle story of our healing when the news broke that another church in South Texas had just experienced the same horror. Again, quoting Pastor Brady Boyd. He says a military trained man with an assault rifle with the intent to kill unarmed people is almost impossible to stop. No amount of training could have prepared that tiny church in Texas for this evil. We're now living in a violent society where even the small town America and small rural churches are not safe. Church security was something I never heard discussed while growing up in North Louisiana. Guns were plentiful, but there seemed to be no threats to our safety in the sanctuaries of my youth. Today, the world has changed and violence is seemingly always at our doorsteps. We are not fearful, but we are wise. We are not downcast, but we are watchful. The sad reality is that every church should have a strategy to protect its members when they gather. We had a great plan on December 9th, 2007, that saved scores of lives, and today we are even more prepared. In fact, our church may be the safest public gathering place in our city. We take it seriously. We have learned some valuable lessons. First, every church should hire at least one uniformed police officer to be visible in the main lobby and parking lot. I don't know about you, but I've grown up in the church and most of the churches I've attended are are relatively small. It's hard to even imagine an armed police officer standing vigil over a church. And I don't want to overstate. I mentioned a laundry list of of, uh, incidents that have taken place. I don't want to overstate how often this happens, but this is where many churches are in trying to anticipate the possibility. So he suggests Every church should have one uniformed police officer visible. Every Sunday, there is a police car parked in front of our church. These off-duty officers are paid by us to be present. They are now our friends, and we see them as part of our vital um, team each weekend. Most crime studies show that criminals can be deterred by the physical presence of a police officer on the property. If local police are not available, hire a very visible security guard. When we first employed uniformed police people, we were concerned that church would feel unsafe, but the opposite has happened. So many people have personally thanked me for having the officer present because it is so reassuring. That is a huge testimony to our local police and sheriff's department, who both have stellar reputations in our community. Because we live in a military town, we're able to recruit and train dozens of men and women to serve our church as volunteers. They spend all week protecting our nation, and they love uh, securing their church the same way. Uh, the dress in uh, rather they dress in plain clothes, but walk the property during our worship services, serving our people. We live in a state that allows most people to carry concealed weapons and carry openly if they choose. We discourage our members from bringing their guns into the church. In fact, if we know someone has a weapon, we escort them out uh, to their car and watch them put it away. We have plenty of trained and qualified people 
uh, who are appropriately armed. We train our team to be watchful and diligent, but not obtrusive or aggressive. In fact, most of the 10,000 or so people who attend our church, I suppose in a large gathering like that, it makes sense, um, are not even aware of the security team other than noticing a police car out front. We are a church, not a sports stadium, so we do not have metal detectors and we do not check handbags as people enter. Most of the violence that happens in a church is a spillover of some uh, sort of domestic issue. Families target one another at church because they know uh, that they can be found at a certain time in a place each week. Our pastors are sensitive to families going through divorce or some type of custody dispute with their children. If there's a problem at home that could affect the church, we alert the police officer on duty. Many times the officer has diffused conflicts before it ever happened, ugly and uh, it ever turns ugly or violent. With all this attention to violence and securing our worship space, we have made sure that we have not lost our innocence along the way. We are not fearful, but we are wise. We are not downcast, but we are watchful. We gather every week to pray, our songs to sing, our prayers uh, to pray, and uh, to learn from the scriptures. We have chosen to forgive those who wish, uh, wish to harm us and to bless those who speak evil against us. Church is a holy gathering of imperfect people. People wrestling with mental health and those struggling with relationships come through our doors every day. Our security team makes it possible for them to find hope and healing in a very safe environment. And again, uh, an article written by uh, Pastor Brady Boyd. He pastors New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He's the author of Speak Life, Restoring Healthy Communion uh, in How You Think, Talk and Pray. Having uh, survived an incident, uh, thought it necessary in his particular congregation uh, to prepare for the the possibility of the worst, which was not anticipated uh, when it happened to his congregation some time ago. Finally, I wanted to share with you um, uh, an excerpt from Albert Moeller's writing uh, this morning. Uh, he quotes a, a very famous uh, quote from, and I'll, it has escaped my memory for just a moment, John Wesley, I believe, when we cannot trace God's hand, we simply trust his heart. At this point, he writes, the investigation is in the earliest stages, but we already know that this is an absolutely horrifying story. It is a tragedy that is only going to unfold in greater tragedy. This attack taking place as a small Baptist church in rural Texas was just beginning its worship service is a sign of something far deeper than has gone wrong in our society. The fact that many of the victims already have been identified as children, including the 14-year-old daughter of the church's pastor, underlines once again that so much of the evil in this world is simply beyond our understanding even our theological understanding. As is so often the case in our experience when headlines like this come at us, the facts themselves seem perplexing and overwhelming. Murder is hard enough for us to understand. Mass murder just makes it all the more difficult. But how can we possibly understand the intentional killing of a pregnant woman, little children, a 14-year-old, and of Christians gathered together for worship? From a Christian worldview, we have to understand that the facts are important. It's not wrong to want to know what the dots are, are and then try to connect them. God made us rational and moral creatures, and this moral sense reaches out for some rational explanation of the horrifying evil of our world. But our first response should not be to try to understand the crime, but rather to identify with the community in grief and experiencing heartbreak. The Christian worldview defines the heartbroken. Heartbrokenness is a part of hum- uh, the human existence. It will come to every single human being at some time. Jesus himself affirmed this in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This particular attack in Texas highlights the fact that Christians are not immune from this kind of heartbreak. 
We cannot understand exactly what that congregation in that community is experiencing, but we do understand heartbreak. And we know that heartbreak is at the very center of their experience at this moment. The Christian worldview affirms the dignity of human life. According to Scripture, every single human life is of eternal value and inestimable worth. Murder is not, then, merely a crime. It is an assault on the dignity of the human being, an attack upon the image of God. In one very important dimension, this demonstrates why the Christian worldview is so utterly different than every other worldview. Atheism, which was embraced by the shooter in this incident on Sunday, for instance, must affirm that at its base, human life is merely a series of accidents. There is no creator, so there is no human being made in the creator's image. Of course, atheists would clearly classify this murderous attack in Sutherland, Texas, as evil, but they have no real ability to understand or to embrace the notion of evil with any coherence. Evil is essentially a theological category. Without theism, evil becomes simply the strongest word we have to describe something we wish hadn't happened. Christians also have to acknowledge that our affirmation of an infinitely great and an infinitely good God requires us to answer some questions that atheists don't have to answer. The most urgent of these questions, how could an all-powerful, all-loving God allow such evil to take place? There are those who have suggested perhaps it's an indication that God really isn't in control of the universe. For instance, Rabbi Harold Kushner famously argued in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, that God is simply doing the best he can with the circumstances, and some circumstances are just too big for God to handle. This assertion, however, is a subversion of the biblical teaching concerning God. It is a repudiation of the God of the Bible. The Bible is clear. God is in control of the entire universe. There isn't one atom or molecule outside of his control. If there is, then we are doomed. Other arguments have been made suggesting that perhaps we are to understand evil, including moral evil, as having an instrumental value. Perhaps God allows this because there is some kind of experience he wants us to have in order to learn some lesson we otherwise would not learn. Yet even as the Bible indicates that pain, suffering, and mourning are teachers, we have to have to be very careful about telling others what God is supposedly teaching them in the midst of their heartbreak. Others have suggested that pain, suffering, and evil do not exist. They are abstractions or illusions. Christians have learned that sometimes we have to wait for an answer, and sometimes that wait goes beyond any answer we can get in this life. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century in London, stated this beautifully, when we cannot trace God's hand, we simply trust his heart. As, we, as uh, we're thinking about the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, we are reminded of the testimony of the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. For Christians facing the honest immensity of this challenge of evil, this is really all we have to say. And here's our confidence. It is enough to trust in God. We face this, this, this horrific tragedy. We must remember, as Isaiah 53 says, Um, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Facing the immensity of evil, we must embrace what Christ has done. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Dr. Greg Jantz. His book is titled Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. He'll join us about 15 minutes after 5 o'clock. I hope you'll be here uh, to enjoy our conversation. 
Whether your marriage is strong or struggling, a weekend to remember marriage getaway is what every couple needs. My husband and I have attended a couple of times. You can find out ways to improve communication, resolve conflict, um, how to restore romance in your marriage. You can visit weekendtoremember.com for details about the getaway coming to Portland at the Red Lion Hotel on the River. That's the 10th through the 12th of this month. That's weekendtoremember.com. And use the promo code WEEKEND to save on your registration. So keep that in mind. Also, if you are in need of prayer uh, and would value uh, praying for others, you can go to 93.9 as uh, uh, we partnered with Adventist Health to provide a 24-7 prayer network called Prayer Works. Prayer Works is an online community where you can post your prayer requests, concerns, and struggles with as much or as little detail as you'd like. You can even share a bit more of your story, read others' requests and stories, and let them know that you're praying for them, too. Visit kpdq.com, the keyword prayer, and join the Prayer Works prayer community today. Well, President Trump is on his um, Asia trip. It's the longest uh, that he will uh, have taken uh, since his presidency began. Uh, the president met with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, um, and uh, he is meeting then with South Korean President Moon Jae-in before the Northeast um, Asia Security Dinner at the U.S. Consulate General in Hamburg, Germany, on July the 6th. Um, with um, news from special counsel probe into the Russian interference and the presidential election still swirling, the president has his longest trip to date. This uh, odyssey will take him to five countries, two international summits, trade issues and North Korea's nuclear threat are likely to dominate the discussions. A uh, quick primer, the president spent time in Japan after a stopover in Hawaii. He arrived there where he met with uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe as well as American and Japanese service members. He'll also meet with uh, relatives of Japanese citizens who've uh, been held prisoner in North Korea. Uh, Japan is alarmed by the increasingly aggressive moves of uh, North Korea, including testing of ballistic missiles that have flown over Japanese territory. That will be one of the major issues discussed there. During the presidential campaign, uh, President Trump said that he'd be willing to see Japan develop its own nuclear arsenal, upending decades of nonproliferation policy. So you might want to listen for that. Since taking office, he's reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to defend Japan, though aides say there is uh, room for Japan to upgrade its own defense. On a lighter note, uh, Trump and Abe are both avid golfers. They're expected to play a round or so together in Tokyo. The president will meet with South Korean President Moon Jae-in and deliver a speech to the National Assembly, where he'll urge that country to ramp up its pressure to halt North Korea's uh, nuclear uh, program. The president will reiterate the plan to uh, the plain fact, rather, that North Korea threatens not just our allies, South Korea and Japan, but the United States. National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster said in a briefing uh, on Thursday that North Korea is a threat to the entire world, so all nations of the world must do more to counter that. Uh, that threat. Trump is also going to visit Camp Humphreys. It's a newly expanded military base about 40 miles south of Seoul, which will eventually house uh, many of the 28,500 U.S. troops in that country. South Korea paid most of the cost in developing that $11 billion base, and the Trump administration calls it a great example of burden sharing. Uh, in China, the president will meet with President Xi Jinping, uh, who just concluded a Communist Party Congress that strengthened his grip on power and enshrined his policies in the party constitution. President Trump will once again urge China to use its economic leverage to put the brakes on North Korea's nuclear program. And aides are saying that the administration is pleased with steps China has taken so far, such as halting uh, purchases of North Korean coal, but added that all countries need to do more. In September, the central bank there ordered financial institutions throughout the country to stop doing business with North Korea. China is 
definitely doing more, but obviously it's not enough. McMaster said this isn't the United States or uh, anyone else asking uh, China to do as uh, do us a favor. China recognizes it's uh, clearly in its own best interest and all nations to denuclearize the peninsula. Uh, Trump also uh, wants to press China for more balanced trade. He complained repeatedly during the campaign about the U.S. trade deficit with China. In fact, in Japan, he made it quite clear that uh, Japan is uh, doing much better than the United States. And that balance, that imbalance is unfair. Uh, The administration argues that China unfairly restricts imports from the U.S. In October, the Commerce Department ordered anti-dumping tariffs on imports of Chinese aluminum foil. Despite his uh, combative rhetoric, the administration has so far held off on on imposing more severe trade penalties, but that uh, could still come. In Da Nang, Vietnam, the president will attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, which brings together leaders of 21 countries around the Pacific Rim. He'll also speak to a gathering of corporate executives being held alongside the summit. He's expected to discuss the important role Asia plays in the U.S. economy, as well as the U.S. commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific region. Uh, those themes echo uh, pronouncements from former presidents, um, president rather, singular, President Obama, uh, who tried to boost American, uh, America's profile in the region, both militarily and economically. In one of his uh, first acts as president, though, uh, Donald Trump withdrew from the U.S., uh, rather withdrew the U.S. from a 12-nation trade pact at the center of the Uh, Obama Pacific agenda. The APEC speech will be an opportunity for the president to offer an alternative vision for U.S. engagement in that region. Russian President Vladimir Putin will also attend the summit. The White House has not said whether Trump and Putin will meet one-on-one. On On the fashion front, uh, the APEC tradition calls for a family photo of leaders wearing matching outfits based on the host country's indigenous garb. Wow. Uh, Vietnam plans to stick to this tradition, though it's not known if Trump will actually don the local costume. Trump will also travel to Hanoi for meetings with Vietnamese leaders. He'll be in Vietnam on the 11th when the U.S. observes Veterans Day, interestingly enough. Uh, Trump will attend a summit of Southeast Asian nations in Manila, Philippines, and meet one-on-one with President Rodrigo Duarte. The Philippines' leader has drawn international scrutiny for his crackdown on drug trafficking, which critics say includes thousands of extrajudicial killings. Last year, President uh, Obama uh, canceled a planned meeting with Duarte after the Philippine leader warned him not to raise the human rights issue and referred to Obama as the son of, well, we won't say. In addition to the uh, 10-nation uh, Asian Summit, and that's A-S-E-A-N Summit. Uh, President Trump is now also planning to attend a broader East Asia Summit that follows it. He had initially planned to skip that second gathering, which some observers saw as a missed opportunity for him to demonstrate U.S. commitment to the region. On Friday, as he departed the White House it began or to begin his journey, uh, the president announced a last-minute extension of the trip so he could attend that summit after all. So he will be out of the country Uh, for, uh, I think he still has something like 10 days or so. It's five o'clock. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll be back in just a few moments to continue our conversation and to hear from Greg Jantz, a PhD, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, six minutes after five o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Also coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Gregory Jans, his latest book, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. So looking forward to that conversation. Also want to remind you, today's program is brought to you in part by Zero Res. 
Well, still reeling from Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump in last year's presidential election and wondering how to move forward, the schism within the Democratic Party, and by the way, schism is no nothing new to either party, uh, appears to have widened even more in the wake of the bombshell claims made last Thursday by the former interim party boss, Donna Brazil. Well, the allegations by Ms. Brazil not only asserted that the Democratic National Committee helped uh, rig last year's presidential primary in favor of uh, Clinton over Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, which he and others continue to remind us he, he was not a Democrat, but also raised a number of troubling questions as the party attempts to regroup ahead of next year's midterm elections. Um, are Brazil's revelations the first shots in a virtual civil war between the Democratic establishment faithful to the Clintons and a growing progressive wing represented by lawmakers like Sanders uh, and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren? Is this the final um, nail in the coffin for the Clintons' influence within the Democratic Party? And will this scandal linger uh, into 2020 when the party challenges Donald Trump for the White House? Well, these are all questions yet to be answered. But Joe Trippi, who's a Democratic strategist, says that this is a standard in politics when you don't have the presidency because there's nobody in charge of the party. Uh, you're going to have uh, an all-out battle and uh, a new voice will eventually emerge. Finding out... Um, who that voice is going to be, when it will emerge, when it appears uh, for the first time is uh, the challenge. And for the time being, uh, it's a long ways away. And the fallout from the claims made in the Brazil book reverberate throughout the Democratic Party. It was obviously a shocking revelation. Uh, Bernie Sanders campaign manager uh, said Bernie Sanders not commenting himself. It was pretty clear that they were on the Clinton side. I don't think any of us uh, imagine that uh, there was actually a formal arrangement giving the Clinton campaign control of the DNC, however. In her new book, excerpts of which uh, uh, Politico published, Brazil writes that the DNC signed a, a joint fundraising agreement document with the Hillary Victory Fund and Hillary for America. It had been signed in August of 2015, four months after Hillary announced her candidacy and a year before she officially secured the nomination over Sanders. The agreement, signed by Amy Dacer, a former CEO of the DNC, and uh, Robbie Mock, who with a, a copy to Mark Elias, uh, specified that in exchange for raising money and investing in the DNC, Hillary would control the party's finances, strategy and all the money raised. Brazil wrote in her uh, uh, memoir. Her campaign had the uh, right of refusal of who would be the party's communications director, and it would make final decisions on all the other staff as well. Defenders of Clinton have noted that Sanders' campaign also signed its own joint fundraising agreement with the DNC during the campaign season as well. Brazil took over the uh, interim DNC chairmanship in 2016 when Florida Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced out as chairman over emails that indicated the party organization unfairly flavored uh, Clinton over Sanders during the primary. DNC spokesperson who works under the current DNC chairman, Tom Perez, says that the party must remain neutral in the presidential primary process and there shouldn't even be a, a a perception that the DNC is uh, interfering in that process, but it appears the damage has been done. Well, Democratic Congresswoman uh, uh, Gabbard of Hawaii said Brazil's revelation confirmed what many suspected for a long time and added that the deep financial debt, closed door decision making, complete lack of transparency and unethical practices are now front and center. Gabbard's statement was preceded by a video earlier in the week in which she uh, slammed Perez for the recent overhaul of the party's executive committee, which she said was intended to cast out those who haven't fallen in line with the establishment and who are actually demanding reform. So you've got a uh, rebellion within the ranks among the Democrats, as well as the Republicans who want to drain the swamp and reject the establishment in the Republican Party. 
Among the revelations in uh, Dan, uh, in uh, Ms. Donna Brazil's book is that the uh, she considered replacing Hillary Clinton with Joe Biden after Hillary Clinton fainted. Uh, she had pneumonia. She fainted while attending an outdoor ceremony in New York City, marking the 15th anniversary of 9-11 attacks. But she said she, um, uh, the then interim director of the national, the Democratic National Committee, had already known that Clinton had pneumonia. She writes in her upcoming book, according to the Washington Post, which she received an advanced copy. The uh, Post Review said uh, the book Hacks, the inside story of uh, break-ins and breakdowns that put Donald Trump in the White House, says Brazil writes in wrenching detail about the former first lady's bout with pneumonia, including her seeing Clinton at a Manhattan uh, gala two days before the collapse. Brazil said Clinton was already wobbly on her feet and had a rattled cough. Clinton's former campaign team said it is uh, in an open letter posted Saturday on the blogging platform Medium that they were dismayed by Brazil's revelations, but revelations they are, and they're out there to be debated within the, the uh, Democrat Party, which will have some influence, one would imagine, in shaping its future. Meanwhile, federal investigators have gathered enough evidence to bring charges in their investigation of the president's former national security advisor and his son as part of the probe into Russia's intervention in the 2016 election, according to multiple sources. Uh, Michael T. Flynn, who was fired after just 24 days on the job, was one of the first Trump associates to come under scrutiny in the federal probe, now led by special counsel Robert Mueller, and a possible collusion between Moscow and the Trump campaign. Mueller is applying renewed pressure on Flynn. Following his indictment of Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, three sources familiar with the investigation told NBC News the investigators are speaking to multiple witnesses in coming days to gain more information surrounding Flynn's lobbying work, including whether he laundered money or lied to federal agents about his overseas contacts, according to those three sources. Mueller's team is also examining whether Flynn attempted to orchestrate the removal of a chief rival of Turkish President Recep Erdogan from the U.S. to Turkey in exchange for millions of dollars to officials said a spokesperson for the special counsel had no comment. Flynn's son, Michael Flynn, who worked closely with his father, accompanied him during a campaign or dur- during the campaign, rather, and briefly worked on the presidential transition. He could be indicted separately or at the same time as his father, according to the sources. If the elder Flynn is willing to cooperate with the investigators in order to uh, help his son, two of the sources said it could also change his own fate, potentially limiting any legal consequences. But the pressure on Flynn is the latest signal that Mueller is moving at a rapid and steady pace in his investigation. Last week, you recall, investigators unsealed indictments of Manafort and Manafort's business partner, Rick Gates. They pled not guilty. Since his political commentary was published in the Los Angeles Times on Wednesday, David Horsey says uh, he has heard from a number of angry people. Horsey is a Los Angeles Times columnist who took a rather unflattering jab at Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House uh, spokesperson. They have chastised Mr. Horsey, a, a, a two-time winner of a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning, mostly for describing President Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, as a slightly chunky soccer mom in the Times. And on Saturday, he heard from another critic he acknowledged had a particular right to be offended, Mrs. Sanders' mother. She was mad, Mr. Horsey said in a telephone interview on Saturday night, but she was good about it. He said it wasn't anything like the really nasty stuff. Well, she's, of course, a a lady. He said he replied to her email and told her, I know I was wrong and I sincerely apologize. Mr. Horsey sent his individualized note of regret a day after issuing a much broader mea culpa that the Times affixed to the top of his commentary. Mr. Horsey had opened his writing 
had opened uh, his writing rather by writing that Ms. Sanders does not look like the kind of woman Donald Trump would choose as his chief of staff spokesperson. He, wa- he went on to say the president had generally exhibited a preference for a certain kind of woman and that the Trump daughter and wife uh, are the, uh, the, uh, uh, the type that uh, the president uh, would prefer. By comparison, Sanders looked more like a chunky soccer mom who organizes snacks for her kids' games. Well, many people, including some reporters, were quick to lay into Mr. Horsey. And this is a first because oftentimes when conservative women are uh, pilloried, the, there's silence on the other side of the continuum. Several called the column sexist and accused him of body shaming. Others responded by attacking his own appearance. The Times added a note at the top of the column with Mr. Horsey's apology, which said the description was insensitive and failed to meet the standards of our newspaper. However, it did make print. Um, almost all of the uh, first two paragraphs of the column were removed and for the record was added, reiterating the language was not up to the Times standard. An email to the White House press office and to Ms. Sanders seeking comment on Saturday night were not returned. Mr. Horsey has been drawing political cartoons and accompanying them with short commentary at the Times since 2012. His top of the, tipic, uh, top of the ticket feature is syndicated and appears three times a week. But he has been chastised. My guess is he will retain his position, uh, which, if the shoe were on the other foot, would less likely be the case. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Greg Jantz. His book is titled Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, child abuse is on the rise. The number of children killed in their own homes is on the rise. In the last 10 years, 20,000 children have died in their homes as a result of physical violence. The children who manage to survive the abuse become nine times more likely to be involved in criminal activity. And sadly, the U.S. has some of the highest rates of child abuse among industrialized nations. The rate of emotional abuse, sexual abuse and neglect is also on the rise as more biological parents split up, leaving children without the protections a healthy family offers. My next guest, author Dr. Gregory Jantz is the author most recently of Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse. He says he fears childhood sexual abuse is also likely to grow. He says that children victimized by adults or abused children may adopt by may adapt rather by retaining a habit of constant vigilance. This heightened sense of self-protection creates enormous stretch, which is generating a new set of problems evidenced by higher rates of substance abuse, sexual activity, and psychological disorders. In his book, he points out the challenges and he provides practical steps for healing from abuse. The pattern of childhood emotional abuse leaves lifelong scars that must be dealt with directly. And his book helps you do just that. Well, Dr. Jantz is a certified eating disorder specialist, certified chemical dependency counselor, a nationally certified psychologist, and a licensed mental health counselor. The author of 28 books, he's the founder of the Center, A Place of Hope, listed as one of the top 10 facilities for treatment of depression in the United States. He brings a message of hope and healing to audiences through seminars, conferences, and the media. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, Moving Beyond the Past into a Healthy Future. Dr. Jans, it is such a delight to have you with us. Thank you. Well, thank 
Thank you. Um, boy, I feel good just listening to that introduction. <laughs> and you did Thank it you. all. <laughs> well, yeah. I tell you, I well, wish... I know, we, I know we have a hard topic today. Yes, I was just going to say, I wish you and I were talking about something else. But I am grateful that you have provided a resource to help us better understand the problem. But, but more importantly, for those who are the survivors of childhood abuse, to begin to move forward uh, in a way that is, uh, is healing. Uh, can you give us some idea of how prevalent child abuse is? And again, that's defined in a variety of different ways. But give us some perspective on uh, the problem here in the United States. Well, you know, and it's hard to measure for sure, except we know that uh, when we use the term child abuse, that encompasses everything from uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and I'm going to include um, emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking at there is um, really uh, FBI tells us that one out of three girls will be a victim of sexual abuse by her 18th birthday, so that's one out of three. And that usually the numbers we read for boys are around one out of seven. So we know, and those are those are you know, in a way, guesstimates, but we know the issue is huge, and it takes various forms. Sometimes when we use the word abuse, we may automatically think of sexual abuse, and mm-hmm. and yes, it's that, but plus more. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the impact that can have on a survivor. A child becomes a young adult, becomes an adult. Uh, there's an impact that remains that the, the victim may not even be fully aware of. Well, you know, there's an impact in that it obviously uh, is, is, is very, if you will, an evil thing to have happen and done to you. And so, you know, it's a shattering of your self-esteem uh, and who you are. Uh, there's uh, effects of issues in trusting myself, and uh, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy. So I, I just would say that abuse permeates uh, every area of our life. Uh, you know, right down to our self-confidence, how we see ourselves, and uh, our relationship with God. It can affect everything. Now, what are some of the techniques that children uh, use to survive their abusive situations? We know that they are highly adaptive, which may or may not be a benefit, but give us some ideas of the techniques that children use to survive. Well, a technique might be, you know, for a while I just I go along with it because I'm afraid uh, if I've been a victim of sexual abuse, I, there's such power and control over me that I am just uh, doing all I can do to, uh, so I won't be you know, injured or uh, something else won't happen. If I can just make this person happy, they'll go away uh, is, is one of the thoughts. Also, there's some people that I call it, uh, we call it disassociate, where they uh, disconnect uh, from reality so much that they just, it's so terrible what's happening that they're just visualize themselves maybe somewhere else. And they learn to just disengage from what's going on and the reality of what's going on. Mm. You write that the pattern of childhood emotional abuse leaves lifelong scars that must be dealt with directly. Now, the intention of your book is to encourage adults uh, to begin to take a a close and hard look at uh, that past and uh, helps them to move forward. Absolutely. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to deal with this honestly 
look at this squarely in the eye and, and deal with what's going on. Too often, uh, you know, we, we may even make excuses. If you've been a victim of emotional abuse, you may just say, well, that's just the way he is. He screams and yells and, you know, he doesn't really mean it. And we begin to rationalize it, deny what it's doing to us. Oh, we just because we're afraid to really confront the truth of what's going on. If if it is uh, not addressed, what's likely to be the consequence? Because for for the numbers of people who have been impacted by the various kinds of abuse as children, carrying that into adulthood uh, and not confronting it, not moving through and, and uh, forward, um, can leave some very serious scars. You know, very serious scars. And one of the things, scars it's going to leave is a scar of 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 probably some deep depression uh, because uh, nothing, you know, abuse will shatter your world. And if I'm so depressed and I'm anxious, I may even look for uh, addictive uh, behaviors uh, in order to cope. Maybe I'm going to secretly eat and turn to food. Maybe I'm going to uh, turn to alcohol or any any way that I can, if you will, self-medicate and get away from it all. Mm. Why do we? Uh, why do those who have been abused tend to deny the truth of uh, their own childhood abuse? Because it's so shameful. You know, it's a very very difficult. Um, to even admit that this has happened to me, in shame, that sense that I'm, something's terribly, I'm defective and it's my fault. That whole area of shame really, really uh, causes fear, and, and we don't want to say anything. You write that one of the characteristics of abused children is their belief that they're responsible for the bad things that happen to them. Where does that that come from? And and as an adult, how do you address? Uh, that uh, misapplication of blame. The misapplication of, of, of blame, you know, sometimes we go, okay, well, it must be all about me. If There's, there's got to be something wrong with me. Otherwise, this would never have happened. You know, it's, it's the parent who says, you know, you are so stupid. Why can't you just be more like your sister? And you, and you go, well, yeah, I, I guess they're right. If I could only be more, it must be my fault. I, and a sense that I'm not good enough. And so I really begin to blame myself uh, for what's being done, or I must have done something uh, to deserve this. Now, as an adult, that, you know, hearing you say that, it sounds so utterly um uh, wrong. It's not. It's not the right way to think through. But how is it that we hold on to that notion that I must somehow be responsible, or else I wouldn't have been singled out, or I wouldn't have been the victim or the focus of this kind of negative attention? You know, here's the difficulty. We usually need somebody to come along in our lives that's a strong voice of truth, somebody that can tell us, um, and really in, in a in a loving way, but going to tell us the truth. Because um, we become something called a victim, and a victim begins to live a life or a lifestyle of, I deserve this. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's so uh, typical. I, I imagine that's a part of the abuse as well, that to deflect blame from the abuser, that that's a tool that's used to, um, to get the child to be more compliant by making them feel that they're somehow responsible for what's happened. And if they were different then uh, the thing that's happening to them would not likely happen. That's right. Yeah. 
That's yeah. right. If I was only, you know, handled the, if I would have only handled things differently, if I only looked differently, um, and it sets us up, you know, in the schools and in other relationships, it sets us up for mistreatment. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Gregory Jans. His book is titled Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, Moving Beyond the Past into a Healthy Future. The book is published by Ravel. We'll continue in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about Dr. Gregory Jan's latest book, Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, Moving Beyond the Past into a Healthy Future. In the book, you'll find that he is compassionate. He helps uh, those who have been abused to understand the effects of childhood abuse on their emotional, intellectual, physical, relational, and spiritual health. And he then walks you through the steps to lasting healing, including, including rather grieving what was lost, learning to balance emotions with intentionality, regaining a positive relationship with your own body and mind, and coming to an understanding of God not as a frightening authority figure uh, or an accusing judge, but as a loving creator, redeemer, and friend. Again, the book is titled Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, Moving Beyond the Past into a Healthy Future. Now, once an adult is willing to acknowledge and recognize that I was a victim uh, I was an unwilling victim of abuse. What's the what's the first thing they need to do to start on that journey to healing and to having a clearer understanding of who God is? You know, one of the things that's uh, so important is I have got to step up and be strong. And, and really, I'm going to say, ask God to give you the courage to speak truth. And so I have to deal honestly with what happened. And I probably, or what is happening currently, I probably need to talk to somebody. I most likely need to, it's a counselor or it's a person that really understands this, um, who can have a um, solid plan for me as I begin to navigate just what's going on. And when I mean navigate, um, I if I'm living with an abuser or is that person still around in my life, um, how am I going to navigate this? You know, there's times that a person may be told, you just need to go and, you know, tell them what they did to you. Well, there are times doing that could endanger you. And so we've got to really partner with uh, qualified help because there's times when this happens that, you know, I don't believe we should face it alone. I think we need some help. And also, there's a greater picture. If I deal with uh, an abuser and confront it, it can send shockwaves through the family. And I've just got to be prepared, uh, really, to deal with the truth. Because sometimes people don't want us to deal with that truth. They'd rather keep it hid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as a therapist, you believe in the whole person model. What, what is that model? Describe it for us. Um, the whole person model is a model that looks at, okay, there's definitely a spiritual side to walk through this. I need God's help and I need, I need prayer covering and I, my healing is going to come in my relationship with my creator. I've got to have that. Uh, whole person approach also says I have got to look at all the uh, emotional side of how things are are such. Um, I've got to look at the whole area of um, where there's been family members that have traumatized me. I've got to look at, 
you know, all the relationships that uh, is affected. So that's a part of the whole person. I even need to rebuild my uh, physical health. Maybe for so long I've stopped taking care of myself, and I've got to reestablish good nutrition, and I've got to learn uh, new sleep and sleep hygiene. So you can see the whole person is going to look at, okay, there's a thousand pieces of this puzzle, and one by one, we're going to put that puzzle back together. Now, why do um, abused children who become um, formerly abused adults develop a warped understanding of God? Because it's as though my Heavenly Father should have protected me. It must be true. I'm unlovable. Uh, God doesn't love me because because of what um, I've done. God doesn't love me because he's allowed this to happen. You see, we, we really get all this thinking that is really way off from reality. Is that uh, fairly common with those who have suffered abuse? You know, it is. It really is. That's, we're back to that unworthiness. Uh, you write about cognitive healing, emotional healing, physical healing, uh, yeah. but they all take different actions on the part of the person who has been uh, abused. How can you know uh, if you've, you've got it uh, right, if you're dealing with one thing or the other or a combination of them? Well, you're going to be dealing with a combination of them. You know, I was just thinking, if a person has been sexually abused, they're automatically emotionally abused. They're automatically physically abused. But I can be emotionally abused without having physical abuse. I can be emotionally abused without sexual abuse. Name-calling, belittling, uh, marginalizing a person is a way of, of abusing them, a pattern of that in your life. You know, it still creates some scars, and it still creates some bruises. Though those may be, you know, uh, not visible to the eye, they're still there. When a person does take seriously uh, and pursues healing of the wounds of childhood abuse, what might they expect? I, I imagine having the history, it's difficult to imagine a life where that isn't predominant in shaping uh, virtually everything about you, your view of the world, the way you relate with other people. What might one expect when you go through the process of healing those wounds of childhood abuse? It's going to be uh, a roller coaster ride. You're going to be so glad at one point you're dealing with it, and then it's going to be the wave of anxiety, the wave of depression is going to hit you, and you're going to feel like you are plummeting down. So it is going to be a good one, but it's going to be an emotional roller coaster. And it's going to, it's going to level out, and you will um, eventually um, be so, so glad you did this. You're going to be stronger. It's going to affect every relationship. And you're going to see yourself more of how God designed you to be. So it's worth it. What do you hope for uh, readers of Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse will will find in this book? Is this a first step or is this, um, is this sufficient for them to really do the deep dive necessary to address the deep wounds? This is a beginning um, of healing. This is a starting point. This is though a book that, you know, many may want to use this book with a counselor uh, or, or with somebody that can help walk them through. This is not an end place. Uh, it, it certainly is a, is a good beginning, but it's a place where I am going to feel heard and understood in these pages. I, I probably eventually will feel some hope, but it's a painful journey. 
Well, again, the book is titled Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, Moving Beyond the Past into a Healthy Future. For listeners who might be interested in learning more about the center, what would be the best place for them to check that out? You know, there's uh, good information available to you at aplaceofhope.com, aplaceofhope.com. Well, Dr. Jans, thank you so much for being with us today and for providing a resource to help people begin that journey uh, toward healing. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Bye-bye. Again, the book titled Healing the Scars of Childhood Abuse, Moving Beyond the Past into a Healthy Future. The book is published by Ravel. Dr. Gregory Jantz is the author. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. This is the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We spend a lot of time reflecting on uh, what has saddened most of the country, events that took place on Sunday morning in Texas. I appreciated what Tony Perkins had to write, uh, making the point that we know the ending and it's good. This is not the end. This is a part of the unfolding story that occurred in a small town in Texas. It was supposed to be a day of prayer for the world's persecuted church. That was the focus of that Sunday. No one in a sleepy Texas town could have ever dreamed the persecution would be them, the persecuted. But that's the harrowing reality for everyone in Sutherland Springs who never saw yesterday's shooting coming. Like most of the tiny community that morning, they were in church, a place 26 of them will never visit again. For reasons law enforcement is still trying to piece together, a young gunman, firing before he even walked through the doors, stepped into the church and changed the lives of almost everyone in Sutherland Springs forever. Just as the associated pastor was getting up to lead worship, people there were seeking God. They began to cry out to him for their loved ones as they fell, one right after the other. It was an horrific scene, one that no one, least of all the peaceful group on Sunday, the faithful, should have had to endure. More than two dozen people lost their lives that morning, from an unborn baby in the womb to a 77-year-old grandparent. By the grace of God, a nearby neighbor and local Sutherland Springs man chased down the gunman, Devin Patrick Kelly, and penned him down until police arrived. But for the people inside that small sanctuary, nothing, not even the killer's death, can bring back the families they loved. The church's regular pastor, Frank Pomeroy, who was out of town, rushed home to find their 14-year-old daughter among the victims. Few can comprehend the horror of the Holcomb family, who were mourning eight loved ones spanning three generations. Their heartbreaking story has stirred deep sympathy across the country as Americans try to imagine losing children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren in a single morning. For Joe and Clarice Holcomb, it was an unspeakable tragedy. Their son pregnant daughter-in-law, three of that couple's five children, and their unborn baby, another infant granddaughter, and another son, all lost at the hands of an evil man. But like so many of the grieving people of that small town in Texas, the Holcombs are drawing on the same faith that brought the family to church on Sunday morning. With absolute conviction, Joe reflected soberly, it's of course going to be difficult, but he said, we are Christians, we have read the book, we know the ending, and it's good. Leaning on the Lord's strength, he said, as much to the families of um, Sutherland Springs as to the Washington Post, God will see us through. What a powerful testimony to everyone in our nation who's hurting, despite those who are uh, very critical today about uh, the the call to prayer and comfort for those who have, have endured great loss. Just a month removed from Las Vegas and even closer to the tragedy in New York, the heartbreaking, the heartbroken town from the... Uh, from the fifth worst shooting in America, have a message for the rest of the world. 
evil never triumphs. Oh, it may appear so today, but evil never triumphs. With most of their church family gone and the sanctuary beyond repair, the people of Southland Springs are not shaken. Led by the families suffering most, the world is not seeing violence, but a picture of the one who overcame it. This is a small Christian town, a very small community, said one of the women at yesterday's vigil. Everybody's united. Everybody's so close to everybody. Well, the evidence of our brokenness is everywhere, on a bike path, at a concert, in church. But God is still on his throne. Joe and Clarice Holcomb, in an agony no parents should ever have to face, said resolutely, we'll all be together soon. Until then, we join so many millions of Americans in prayer that God will bring comfort to this church and community. As 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-5 through 5 tells us, it's who he is. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Such a tragedy and yet becoming far too common. Uh, and we do need to pray as we discussed earlier in the program. I was encouraged by a Christian News Northwest story that I think in light of what happened over the weekend, put some things into perspective how God somehow brings beauty out of ashes. Uh, the uh, John Fortmeyer writing for Christian News Northwest uh, points out that it's according to a retired Washington County Judge Tom Cole, a clear example of how God can make something good out of even the most tragic of circumstances. We're talking about a faith-oriented four-year uh, degree program planned for prison. Now, you might recall Washington County Judge Tom Cole's daughter was murdered. Um, and his story, which he has told here, I won't recall, but it is a remarkable testament to the grace and mercy of God and the power of forgiveness. Well, during the 18th annual Hillsborough Prayer Breakfast on the 25th of last month at the Tuolity Health Education Center, Judge Cole said that he and local pastor, uh, a local pastor, have both experienced the extreme grief of their daughters being brutally murdered, and they're now jointly pursuing a vision to provide prison inmates a new faith-oriented degree program. I'm referring, of course, to Pastor Rich Jones of Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, who lost his daughter just a few years ago. Uh, Paid in Full Oregon, a ministry formed by Judge Cole and Pastor Rich Jones, um, is joining with Corbin University in Salem to launch the four-year program next fall at the Oregon State Correctional Institution near Salem. Our vision is to transform our pain so as to give meaning and hope to the lives of inmates in Oregon's prison system, Judge Cole said speaking to some 200 people at that breakfast. According to Judge Cole, inmates who go through the program will become assistants to chaplains and will be sent to other prison programs across the state to make a positive spiritual impact. They also will be available to mentor their own fellow inmates. Most of all, they will offer hope. Judge Cole says he said the program will be patterned after similar college programs set up for inmates in Texas, Louisiana, Georgia and other states. And he noted, for example, that the Angola Penitentiary in Los Angeles, or rather in Louisiana, was infamous in the early 1990s as the most violent and bloodiest maximum security prison in the nation. But since a Bible seminary program was implemented there, assaults in the prison have decreased by 75 percent. We had one of the uh, one of the graduates, one of the inmates uh, here on the program some months ago to talk about that program. Judge Cole outlined at the breakfast his own faith journey, which saw him commit uh, his life to Christ in 2000 at a church men's retreat, saying, I realized what a mess my life was. 
He recalled two failed marriages before he met his current wife, Julie, a Christian. But his daughter, Megan, who had a compassionate heart for those bullied, needy and lost, also found herself too often drawn into the drama of those she tried to help. She developed a methamphetamine addiction, and in July of 2006, she was killed at age 21 at a Gladstone apartment in a murder for hire. Judge Cole went through waves of deep grief. He said, I did not think God could work any good from my daughter's brutal murder, he recalled. Surprisingly, though, he felt no hatred toward his daughter's killer, who was sentenced to prison. He asked to meet with him and shared his faith, and the prisoner burst into tears and asked, Judge, how can you be so kind? You might recall this story he told right here on the program. Jesus had already started uh, the process of enabling me to forgive um, the her murderer before I ever uh, knew his name, he said. Well, the same kind of God-motivated forgiveness was extended by Pastor Jones in a Hillsborough courtroom some five months ago at the sentencing of the man who killed his daughter in August of 2014. She was 29. Nicole Lobby in Portland. Uh, Pastor Jones has long known the Coles. Years ago, he performed the wedding ceremony for uh, Judge Cole and his uh, wife, Julie. But the common tragedy of the two daughters' murders has closely bonded the retired judge and the pastor, and this program was birthed as a consequence. Uh, Judge Cole says, I've been able to offer that same comfort to Pastor Rich uh, that I received from God, and uh, that harkens back to the scripture I read just a moment ago. By the way, we're going to have Judge Cole on the program on the 6th of December, and we'll certainly let you know when we get closer to that date. But an opportunity to recall his story and the tremendous program that has been birthed out of tragedy. And I mention all of that in the context of events that took place on Sunday morning when God's family, a part of the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters, met for worship, and many of them uh, lost their lives in the melee that ensued when a gunman entered. Uh, he actually started shooting before he entered the sanctuary. Somehow God will work together for some good. And in the, in the, in the shadow of what's just happened, it's difficult to even say that. But having experienced it myself, uh, looking at Judge Cole's story, listening to Pastor Rich and how God transformed a tragedy and somehow out of that grew something good. That is my prayer. And uh, that is our confidence and hope uh, in the wake of these events on Sunday. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Rupert Darwell. Uh, he's the author of Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. That's coming up tomorrow on the program. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.